This is the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. One of the best ways to learn is by reflecting on the mistakes and successes of others. Each episode within this series will showcase one of the many case histories developed by GBA and its member firms. They're a collection of stories that cover many different disciplines within the geo professions, each with a unique message and lesson learned. We hope you enjoy this podcast and encourage you to share the lessons learned with others at your organization. Thanks for tuning in to the GBA podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Geo Professional Business Association. Check out the GBA website at geoprofessional.org, where you can find information on upcoming conferences and access publications like best practices, business briefs, and case histories. All of these resources are free for GBA members. My name is Bryce Moore with Blackburn Consulting. In today's podcast, we are going to discuss Case History 105. I have the pleasure of interviewing the author of Case History 105, who also lived through this case history. Dan Schaefer will walk us through what happened and the lessons learned. Joining me today to discuss Case History 105 is Vice President Daniel Schaefer with Froling and Robertson. Froling and Robertson provides geotechnical engineering, construction materials testing, special inspections, environmental services, geostructural monitoring, dam services, and residential engineering services. Froling and Robertson have been practicing for 140 years and have offices in Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. Dan, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us an overview of Case History 105. Thanks, Bryce. Appreciate this opportunity. So this was a project uh, that was a very typical townhome development in this area, and we had worked on many similar developments for this client and for other clients for a long time. We were very familiar with the geology of the area, and we actually performed a geotechnical engineering exploration and evaluation for this project. The development consisted of three-story wood frame townhouse buildings constructed on a concrete slab with integral turndown perimeter footings and interior lug footings, all placed in a monolithic core. The particular townhome structure that was associated with this case history was supported on about 20 feet of structural fill and a mechanically stabilized earth retaining wall was constructed about 15 to 20 feet from the building and it actually wrapped around two sides of the structure. As such, the back of the wall reinforced zone was within just a few feet of the building, but it didn't actually extend under the building slab or the building footprint. So our firm was performing uh, construction materials testing and also construction inspection services during the structural fill placement on the building pad and also during construction of the retaining wall. These are all services that we had provided on dozens of projects for this client and other clients. So from that standpoint, it was a, a fairly routine project. So the case history is really the story of a series of unfortunate events that stem from misdiagnosis of slab issues and also wall issues that triggered an unnecessarily extensive as well as expensive repair to the wall and the developer subsequently making a claim against the wall designer, the wall contractor, and my firm after they realized that they had some problems. And so this, this series of unfortunate events included, first, they noticed some plastic shrinkage cracking that occurred in the slab, and it was incorrectly diagnosed by another consultant that was working for the developer. 
and misdiagnosed as being evidence of a slab and foundation settlement. So those observations led to their consultant looking at the retaining wall, which was experiencing some, some cracking at a very tight radius corner in the area where the wall wraps around the building and makes a 90 degree bend. But this defect was also misdiagnosed as a more serious global wall failure and wall movement, really despite there being no evidence of wall distress beyond the cracking that occurred at that corner. Those two observations led to the developer and their consultant recommending a very large repair to the wall and all this evaluation and the recommendations for repairs was put into motion before any of the parties to the lawsuit were involved. And we were only notified, and our firm was only notified, 10 days before the repairs were started. So there really was not enough time to properly evaluate the situation and change the direction of the repairs since they were already in motion. So during the discovery of this case, Additional investigations were performed by multiple parties, and it was discovered that the wall constructor made a field change to the wall design for how the corner of the wall would be constructed. This is this wall that wraps around the townhome building. The plans called for the corner of the wall to consist of two fairly gentle 45-degree bends, but the contractor elected to just construct a tight radial corner rather than constructing it with the two 45-degree bends. And rather than using proper techniques, they ended up cutting a lot of the blocks at the corner to create this radius. And this block cutting effectively eliminated the block-to-block connectivity and that interlocking nature of the blocks, which is created by the fiberglass pins. As a result, over time, the blocks at that corner began to separate and splay open. And then some of the drainage stone that was directly behind the wall was coming out from the wall face. But there was no other evidence of wall distress or movement, and it appeared to be isolated facade issues or a facade failure, and definitely not an issue, nor global or a larger failure issue of the wall. Both our expert witness and the wall designer's expert independently came to that same conclusion, but it was really too late because the parties involved with the wall, including us and the designer and the contractor, we weren't notified of the slab and wall issues until just before this repair was being performed. Of course, in this repair, rather than addressing the one corner of the wall, it extended 200 feet in both directions from the corner. Although we tried to get them to not institute that repair, it was too late for us to reverse the direction, and we couldn't get a more appropriate and cost-effective repair just to the facade performed. So the developer continued with the claim against us and the others in order for us all to contribute to the cost of the repair even though it appeared to everyone as if, you know, even though they couldn't admit it, that this, was, this, this repair was overkill. So as it turned out, this, this shrinkage crack in the slab and the cracks at the corner of the wall were really just misleading, sort of a proverbial red herring, because they were not interconnected, and neither was an indication of building settlement or a larger wall problem. But despite feeling that we had a good chance to win this case, if it went to court, we ended up on the advice of our attorney, settling through a mediation process and taking a piece of the repair costs, which was about 20% of the overall cost of the repair. So that's sort of the, an overview of the, of the case. Thanks, Dan. So early on in the, in the beginning of the case history, there was some discussion on what services to include and what not to include with the, the client. 
the MSC wall design was excluded in, the, in approval of the reinforced zone from the proposal. Did that raise any red flags with your firm excluding that those services? No, it really didn't raise any red flags. And this is typical practice in this area. So at the time we submitted our proposal for the testing and inspection services for this project, the wall design had already been performed by someone else. But we still make a habit of excluding design-related services from, from our proposals for materials testing because we frequently find that the, the testing firm is asked to or is put in the position of making design decisions. So we wanted to make it clear in our testing proposal that we did not do the design and we, we won't be responsible for making design decisions on behalf of the designer. You know, even though as geoprofessionals and geotechnical engineers, we know a lot about retaining wall analysis and design, we still want uh, the designer to be responsible for, for their design. So I guess excluding design-related services would be under the, the umbrella of loss prevention for us and trying to separate us from the design responsibility. You know, one of the reasons we seem to be posed design questions, I believe, is because we have staff that are on-site full-time during wall construction, and we are geotechnical engineers as well, and the wall designers making infrequent visits, which was definitely the case on this project because the wall designer was three hours away from the site. So I think that oftentimes we're put in that position, but we really shouldn't always be, you know, stepping into the design and being careful of that. Another aspect of distancing ourselves from the wall design is regarding approval of the reinforced zone material. On many projects, it's really unclear who is the final approver of these materials and who's the person that assures that they've met the design parameters. We've seen cases and we've been on projects where the wall contractor selects the reinforced zone material and the geoprofessional firm or COMET firm is performing compaction tests on the material, but nobody has ever determined if it met the design requirements or if it's been approved by the wall designer for use. So we, we also exclude that from our, from our COMET testing proposals and inspection proposals. We'll perform the physical tests on the reinforced zone fill, and we, we'll submit those to the designer for approval, but we believe it's the designer's responsibility to actually accept or reject those materials. And, and we've heard of a number of cases where COMET testing firms had approved materials without the designer receiving test reports or without designer weighing in on it, and it comes back to haunt the testing firm. In this area, most segmental and MSE retaining walls for large residential projects and private development projects are put under the responsibility of the contractor. And I know it probably varies throughout the country, but so that is that, that walls are shown on civil plans as lines with top and bottom of walls, but nothing about the type of wall. And then the contractor includes the price for wall design and construction in their site work bids. Although some geoprofessional firms perform wall designs, including our firm, wall designs for these residential, large residential and private development projects in this area are typically performed by a, a few local, relatively small firms that are just performing or primarily perform wall designs. They're not typically geotechnical engineers. They're not typically looking at global stability. They're not looking at geotechnical issues outside the wall envelope, and they tend to be just 
pumping out wall designs for contractors at bid stage of projects. The good number of assumptions regarding you know, proposed structures, soil conditions, groundwater, et cetera. So it was it, that from that standpoint, it was a pretty normal job without a lot of, of red flags. And that's why we make those limitations in our proposal regarding wall design. Thanks, Dan. The slab on grade on this project experienced more than normal shrinkage cracking. Due to the common construction practices at the time, they, the joints were too far spread out and the concrete was allowed to cure without protection in the hot weather and loading the structure within a day or two of the slab being poured. The, it seems like the client and the contractor didn't really have any concerns about the shrinkage, shrinkage cracking at the time. Can you discuss that? Yeah, well, yeah, there's a couple of things going on in the, in the area. I mean, we, we, we didn't have concerns about the shrinkage cracking because we didn't know about the shrinkage cracking because they didn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't involved with the foundation or slab construction on this project. And the cracking wasn't revealed to us until we were notified about this, this claim and this issue. However, for a long time, we've been performing forensic evaluation of slab cracks for single family residences and townhome buildings. We've been making developers and residential home builders aware of the design and construction issues associated with the slab cracks and what's leading to them. And in the cases, you know, most of these residential cases, they're, they're larger cracks, shrinkage cracks than you see in other more commercial projects. And the cracks occur more randomly, certainly not in the, in the contraction joints. So we've gone on a, you know, kind of a campaign of trying to educate constructors and developers on practices that would minimize the problem, but it's really only had limited success in changing the practices. But the developers are aware of it. And as you point out, yeah, there's this combination of things, factors that I believe are contributing to that. You know, one of them is we have unreinforced slabs with monolithically placed perimeter footings and interior footings, they, they tend to restrict shrinkage of the slab or contraction of the slab. And then, you know, we have residential concrete mixes. They're not performing QA or QC during concrete placement. There's no strength testing, no air testing, no slump. As you pointed out, there's no formal curing of the slab. You know, if it's, if it's poured, if the concrete's placed in 90 degree weather, it cures in 90 degree weather. You know, contraction joints we're seeing are cut usually way too late. So the cracks have already begun typically before the, the joints are even cut. So I think all that, that contributes to the, this problem. That leads a lot of people to think the structure is settling when in fact it isn't. It's just, just normal plastic shrinkage cracking. Thanks. The field technician or field representative that was doing all the testing, he was often only the only person on the site watching the MSE wall during construction. Uh, is there anything different you think he could have done to prevent this from happening? Yeah, I've given this a lot of thought, especially back back in the day when this was an active claim. Well, the, the, the field representative did clearly note, and he even underlined it for emphasis in his written field report, that the contractor elected to modify the design at that corner of the wall and did not construct it as designed. He also clearly informed the contractor, which the only people on site at the time were, the, were basically the laborers, that they were constructing the wall not in accordance with the design. However, it's not clear if the field representative called or told our project manager about the issue 
particularly since it was a clear and important issue that maybe maybe could have used a little bit more than just being written in a field report. In essence, it seemed he was relying on our project managers to read the daily report that he was preparing and take the issue from there to the wall designer and the client representative for action. Since the field representative, this, this an engineering technician, knew that the wall designer and the developer, our client, were making infrequent site visits. He also knew that the wall contractor only had intermittent supervision for the construction workers. In hindsight, I think he could have and should have called the project manager and rattled his cage a little bit and told him you know, what he saw, what he was documenting in his report. And if he couldn't have got in touch with the project managers, any number of people in the office he could have called, including the the construction services department manager. So even though I don't believe the field representative can be blamed for the issue, you know, more of that I believe lies with the project management level staff at our company, project management level staff with the developer and superintendent with the contractor. I think you know they carry most of the blame for the situation. I think the field representative could have gone the extra mile and, and made the phone call to notify our project manager um, and made sure he understood it's it's how serious it was. And that may have prevented this thing from even occurring in the first place. Yeah, so elevate as fast as you can if no one's listening. Right, yeah. So if you were the project manager for this project, what are some of the things you would have done differently? Well, it's easy to say now, of course. If, if I were the project manager, I would have reviewed the field representative's report daily and, and sooner than I did. It's not clear when he reviewed them it might have been weeks after the report was written. And of course, if I were the project manager, I would have, like we just discussed, I would have informed the client representative and the wall designer through at least a phone call and probably a follow-up email of the design change and that it was a decision made by the wall contractor. You know, if I were the project manager, I would have definitely noted the discrepancy in the reports that were being sent out to the client. But in fact, what he did was he wrote a project summary report summarizing several weeks of construction activities. And the summary report said that everything looked good. And that summary report had attached to it the field reports that the technician was preparing that clearly identified the discrepancy. So there's a question, did he even read the report? So the discrepancy was inadvertently or unintentionally swept under the rug. So that was that was a big deal. If I were the project manager, I would have made more site visits. Our, our project manager made them infrequently. So he never really saw that problem corner of the wall and how it was built. And that was sort of compounded because the client project manager and the contractor superintendent were on, weren't on site much either. So it became, became a situation where there was little oversight or awareness of what was going on in the field. Finally, I just think the project manager should have been clo in closer communication with our client. He was managing several projects for the client at the same time, similar type projects, should have been communicating regularly about all the projects with the client. But sometimes it seems like we take these good relationships for granted and communication slacks off, you know, especially on projects that we view as sort of routine or, or simple projects. Residential projects can be... In fairly risky for a geotechnical firm. What are some of the pitfalls that you deal with on a residential project similar to this project? Sure. Yeah. Residential projects can be tricky for sure. 
in general, I feel there's a lower quality and experience level of contracting with less supervision. In this case, you know, I indicated that the wall contractor was new to this line of work and was really better known as a landscaping contractor. So in essence, you know, one day this contractor is planting bushes and building small landscape walls. And the next day they're building a 20 foot high segmental retaining wall. You know, another one of the pitfalls of residential work is sort of this boom and bust scenario where this was a boom time for residential construction. So everyone was running really lean. So I think that that's something you need to look at. Specifically to earthwork contractors, I feel in general that on residential projects, there's a little less, they care a little bit less. They're willing to take bigger risks in terms of not following the project plans and specs and not following good construction practices and sort of trying to get to trying to get away with things. So one of the pitfalls on residential projects is it's, there's more pressure on us to have a elevated attention to detail of what's going on and more communication with our client that's high risk, higher maintenance on residential projects. If you're going to do them, you have to be ready to give it that attention that it needs, or maybe that's the type of work you shouldn't do. Another sort of associated pitfall with residential work, I believe, is that Sometimes our residential clients will side with or support the contractor's poor work quality, even when they're informed of discrepancies, or even when they're informed that there's issues of the contractor not achieving the project requirement. So that that puts the testing firm in an awkward position, and even considering if they should be working on projects like this. When the developer or the residential developer goes easy on a contractor, it also sort of perpetuates this behavior. So we see this in the, in the industry, you know, that we have clients. And one of the reasons they do that, the developers, I believe, is because, you know, they're, they're focused or maybe more focused putting lots on the ground to meet sales deadlines rather than paying attention to the quality of the work that, to develop the land for the construction. So I think that's something we need, we need to watch carefully with residential projects and, and selecting our clients carefully. So after going through all the litigation and the cost and time investment in having to deal with that claim, what did your firm do to move forward? What steps did you take to prevent this type of situation from happening in the future? Well, we did a few things right away. One was we instituted better and clearer project management responsibilities you know, including, you know, making the site visits that you're supposed to be making more frequent verbal and electronic communications with the, with the field staff and much quicker review of field reports. And also instituted a more formal process of broadcasting and distributing discrepancies to the, everybody on the project team, you know, the owner, designers, constructors. Um, so discrepancy reports are updated daily as new discrepancies occur and sent out to the project team. You know, that's all performed electronically now. 15 years ago, when this, this incident occurred, we weren't doing it electronically. So that's another thing that we've done. And another was specific to segmental retaining walls, MSE walls, is we're reviewing these, the plans, wall plans, before we get involved with projects to be sure we're comfortable with the design. Knowing that we could get dragged into a claim or a lawsuit associated with a wall issue 
even a small wall issue or failure, regardless of whether we are at fault or not, we only want to be involved with walls that we feel projects that have sound wall designs. You know, we know walls can be designed and built to perform well for a long time. We also see wall designs frequently that appear to be risky and haven't taken into account geotechnical considerations. So we're avoiding those type of projects. And so we're generally also not getting involved with wall construction projects unless we perform the geotechnical engineering for it or the evaluation, geotechnical evaluation has been performed by others. You know, all too often we're seeing significant walls of size or with slopes above them, structures near them, et cetera, being designed with no subsurface information and no geotechnical analysis. And those are the types we're trying to avoid or we're trying to get us involved and do the geotechnical engineering on those walls. But there's many projects we've decided not to pursue or at least not be associated with the wall construction. And finally, you know, another step that we took to try to keep this from happening is we went on an awareness campaign with our developer clients to discuss the entire, you know, life cycle of wall design to construction and really just try to educate them on how it should be executed and what can be done if it's what can happen, excuse me, if it if it's not done properly. Do you think there could have been any better documentation by your firm, whether it be the project manager, or the field staff that could have helped with the claims process? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if, we, if we had documentation that we notified the client and that we notified the wall designer of the discrepancy with how they constructed that corner of the wall, I think we would have either been released from the claim or we could have settled for a lot less. You know, as it turned out with the way things progressed, it looked as if we identified a problem in the field but we didn't let anybody know about it outside of the contractor's field staff, which was just as bad maybe as not, not identifying at all, perhaps. What made it even worse is we wrote a construction summary report, and we didn't point out the discrepancy in our construction summary report, despite attaching the report that emphasized it. So if those two things were handled better, this case history probably would have never been written. Yeah. Can you discuss the importance of a firm's project manager on a project like this one and some of the important tasks they should be performing? Sure. Well, the the project manager's role is really essential because they're the primary link between the field activities and the client and the rest and the design team and the constructors project management staff. Historically, we've seen project managers want to put the blame or burden on the field staff for issues on projects. Yet when we dig deeper, we commonly find that the breakdown is within the project management and project manager and typically associated with, you know, poor, improper, or infrequent communication practices. So communication with the project team is one of the most important tasks of the project manager and oftentimes is a weak link is what we've seen. You know, the project manager's importance is also to be sure there's things like pre-construction meetings occurring. Even if they're not leading the meeting, they can inquire about them and make sure that there's some sort of pre-construction meeting or conference with with all the involved parties, designers and constructors. And too often we're seeing projects start without pre-con meetings, yet we're not raising the flag and even asking about them. So that's another role, important role, I believe, of the project manager. 
Another critical project management task is staying, as we've discussed already, staying on top of the field reports, both in terms of reviewing them, getting them issued to the client rapidly, and that also goes for discrepancy reports that need to be issued immediately. And another critical task, as we've discussed, is making periodic site visits and meeting with our staff, meeting with contractors. While it's a lot easier nowadays, and, and maybe they can think that they don't need to make as many site visits because you know, it's so easy to share photos with field staff, project sites have cameras on them, et cetera. But we still think that making field visits is still important for the project manager and it's an important function. Client relationships can be really important to prevent risk on projects. What are some of the things that your firm could have done based on what seems like an excellent relationship? You were doing multiple projects for the same client to possibly reduce the risk on this project. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. We had a great relationship with our client and at that time it had been a client for almost 20 years. There was an open door policy with this client. There was no reason for us not to be communicating with them frequently. No reason for us to hesitate to let them know about discrepancies. In this case, you know, we were wondering is if, if the project manager took this great relationship for granted and didn't stay in close contact with both the project and the client because it was such a good client. So that that's come into play. We think that this great relationship, maybe we took it for granted. Of course, the workload everyone was under at the time may have also played a role in that as well. So, so you know, it was a very busy time. But I think if we had leveraged that good relationship to stay closer to them and more frequently discuss project status and issues, we definitely could have avoided this issue. After the lawsuit was settled, did your firm continue to work with a client? And how did you work through that relationship? I know litigation can be kind of a contentious subject. Well, yeah, a- after settling, we continued to work with the client. It was the litigation or the, you know, the, the, the claim, the deposition, the mediation, that was all going on during a recession. So there was a little bit of lull, even though they were still a client, there was a little bit of lull in the workload that occurred right after this, the mediation and the depositions were all going on. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it gave us a little bit of a, a little bit of a break in our relationship, but they're still a top client of ours today. And I think our relationship has really improved as a result of this experience. After the, the issue occurred and we took a little bit of a break, we went back and, and re-engaged with them and spent a lot of time talking with them as well as other other large developer clients of ours, uh, talking to them about, like, like I said earlier, about the life cycle of these walls from design to construction and, and things that can happen and how they can avoid issues. So that's really helped in making positive change in how they, how they conduct themselves, you know, including getting us involved earlier on projects when they're being designed. Do walls need to be moved? Are they putting structures or slopes too close to walls? Trying to identify issues long before construction. Um, using better materials is something they're doing. Most of walls now are constructed using uh, granular reinforced zone materials, which wasn't the case at the time this claim occurred. You know, more awareness of drainage issues, particularly the use of chimney drains and blanket drains. So it's really, we have a good relationship with them still. It's improved because we're open. We've become more open with them about these this particular issue, 
and it's reduced in reduced risk for both of us. So it's been a real good, it turns out to have been good for both of us and we still have a strong relationship with them. And I think we hear that commonly with, with GBA case histories that ultimately it may have helped some relationships. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Dan, I really appreciate your time and insight on this case history and hopefully anyone who listens to this podcast can take away some good lessons learned on project management. Uh, you had some very good points on what a project manager should be doing. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Bryce. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed this very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the GBA Case History Series. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. <laughs>